Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Ken Paxton has been impeached as Attorney General of Texas. We have a great show today. Senator Tammy Baldwin stops by to talk about veterans' services and how you pass bipartisan legislation in the year 2023. Then we'll talk to Kim Kelly about the horrors of black lung coming back in the West Virginia coal mines. But first, we have MSNBC Daily editor James Downey. Welcome back to Fast Politics, James Downey. Thank you for having me again. Very excited to have you. So let's talk about what is happening with uh, in te- the Texas legislature. I mean, I feel like this is an incredible story because it's so stupid. Oh, it's it's yeah, it, incredible is exactly the right word. I mean, Ken Paxton, the attorney general there, a House panel that has been investigating him just came out with 20 articles of impeachment and recommended his impeachment. And this is a Republican led panel. The idea of impeaching a an attorney general in his third term, he's been reelected relatively comfortably twice, though, by Republican Texas standards, not hugely comfortably. And he did have challengers like my favorite senator, the stupidest man in the in the Senate, Louis, that's the French, Louis Gomert, uh, Louis Gomert, who, uh, you know, failed to challenge him in the primary. Yeah, he he has shown he has quite quite the base in in Texas. Uh, He has a lot of a lot of fans on on the conservative base there. These are 20 articles of impeachment, largely centered around protecting a donor of his who, and among other things, also hired a woman that 
Paxton allegedly was having an affair with. I'm shocked. So this is nothing new for Paxton. This guy has been under indictment for securities fraud since I believe 2015 and has yet to stand trial thanks to a series of legal maneuvers. How do you do that, by the way? To be honest, I don't know, but I would imagine being the attorney general of Texas helps. <laughs> right. I think, I think to some degree, at least it is because he is in office that he's been able to stay at off this long. And he's under FBI investigation for these donor allegations of the allegations of helping this donor and protecting it. Part of the articles of impeachment include retaliation against whistleblowers in his office, four different whistleblowers. And he's trying to get basically these four different whistleblowers have won a three point. I believe it's over three million dollars, a judgment against him. And he's trying to get the state to foot the bill. Wait, say that again. He faces a whistleblower complaint from four different whistleblowers. This is Paxton. Yes. And he settled a lawsuit in February from four former aides for three point three million dollars. I mean, there are allegations in the articles of impeachment that are related to stuff involving retaliation. But separate from that, he wants the state to foot the bill for the $3.3 million. Why? What's the thinking here? Because he's the attorney general is his thinking. I mean, the, the legislature has already, this is another area in which the Texas legislature has balked it. I mean, they, they, they are not on board with doing this. You know, one important piece of context here is that the Texas Republican Party, there's the conservative grassroots. There's also the sort of more business-friendly establishment of the party, right. which is particularly powerful in the state legislature. Which part is Paxton in? Paxton is the conservative base, is the grassroots. And he has been feuding with, most recently, the House Speaker, right. Phelan, <laughs> who he accused of being drunk based off of a video where Phelan was slurring his words, or appeared to be slurring his words, I suppose. Do you think the House Speaker was drunk? Oh. I watched that video and it certainly sounded like that was not how normally people speak. He sounded like he was slurring his words, that's for sure. Right. But I think that Ken Paxton's bringing it up to distract. This is a guy who, I mean, we've seen it. You mentioned Louis Gomer. You met, I mean, like we you know, obviously Ted Cruz is another example of this where we see, a, particularly in Texas, but all over the place where you have these Republicans who are beloved by the base and the grassroots and the talk show listeners who are just do not get along just on a personal level with the establishment of the party. And I mean, again, just something that a purely personal level. I mean, Paxton, this is a guy who, from the perspective of just effectiveness, he's made the the state, you know, a laughing stock in terms of the kinds of challenges and the kinds of projects he's gotten involved with. I mean, he was at the forefront of the election challenges, which got laughed out of court, even by conservative judges. And abortion. Yeah. Well, an abortion, I think there he'll he'll have more support from again, the establishment where that's more sort of an agreement. But I think if you're the Texas Republican establishment, you don't want this guy, this clown wasting, I mean, again, millions of dollars and wasting all of this time and all this energy on, you know, on on this impeachment stuff, on these pie in the sky, even by Republican standards, lawsuits, you know, you want someone who's going to be more effective. It's very unclear whether or not they'll actually vote to impeach him. They only need a simple majority in the House. They need two thirds in the Senate, just like at the federal level. But the panel that voted to bring up the charges of impeachment was 5-0. Yes, yes. And that was Republican led. I think I think the bigger issue is whether they could get two thirds in the Senate, which is Republican majority. I believe it's close to two thirds Republican majority in the state Senate. Even if the state house again moves forward with the impeachment, it's just there are there are plenty of legislators there, even if they're not in leadership, 
who are very beholden to the grassroots and very much agree with Paxton and are very much in his corner. You know, we talk about Greg Abbott, a lot of the terrible things he's done as governor there. A lot of them have been basically him protecting his right flank against the Paxton wing of the party. Not so much that Paxton himself would be running against Abbott, but uh, Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor. He was very worried about a a challenge there. So Dan Patrick might run for governor against Greg Abbott. The fear was that Dan Patrick would run against him in 2022. Right, which is too late. So that Abbott had to make moves. Some of the stuff that Abbott has done, I mean, not that he's had a great record overall, but some of the stuff that Abbott has done has been very much in with mind towards preventing the right flank of the party from from ousting him in a primary. Unbelievably insane. It's incredible. I, you know, And it's also incredible that in some ways I'm more surprised that Republicans would actually move to impeach him than that an attorney general would do this, would behave this way. Right, right, right. No, no, me too. Think about all they went through with Trump where they just were like going along with that. Yeah, I think, I think again, it speaks to Paxton's personal lack of charm, you know, and if we, we'll, we'll talk about this later again with uh, a certain Florida governor, <laughs> but I think Paxton just on a personal level doesn't really endear himself to a lot of his fellow Texas Republican, well, I guess, Legis, you know, legislators, lawmakers, etc. Speaking of charmless, we are in this very interesting failure to launch. The thing I'm struck by is like, you know, we're seeing so much breathless coverage. Do you see a world where there is, you know, Ron DeSantis is Trump without the charisma, right? Without the charm. Like, who is this for? I think the first way to answer that is to go back to the rapid uh, unscheduled disassembly that was the Twitter spaces. I mean, that's the sort of thing you put together to to announce your campaign on Twitter, even if it all goes according to plan, is the only the kind of thing you do if you have a very online group of advisors. You have people around him, his communications people, many of his most public facing communications people, at least like Christina Pouchaw and others, very much embrace battle on Twitter. And that's weird. Like you... If you wanted to reach the most people, if you wanted to do it online and break some boundaries and stuff, you'd do it on YouTube. You wouldn't do it on Twitter. So who is this for? I think it's for the extremely online conservative person who, you know, thinks they're fighting the woke mind virus. Right, right, right. Yes, the woke mind virus. Everybody drank. Yeah. It's hardly an encouraging start for him, to say the least. I think that, well, before I go further, I think you don't need me to tell you, but obviously, you know. It's important, I think, to to repeat before going further into the horse race coverage is that, you know, you know, just the fact that this guy is where he is, is just a terrible thing for the country, given his record on voting rights, his book bans, the attacks on LGBT Floridians, etc. The thing I'm struck by, and I was like arguing with someone about this on television yesterday, it's like he hates gay people. Like his legislation is so shockingly anti-gay. I mean, we're a country that has codified gay marriage. Like, yeah. We are. This is not being gay is not a big deal in America. And like this guy wants to go back to like 1930. I mean, it's just crazy. It's really remarkable, especially when you you look at, I mean, how quickly they're moving on from their original justifications. You look at the don't say gay bill and everybody around him was like, yeah, was like, well, this is only about elementary school children. You can't possibly object to that. And then immediate, you know, within a year, they're already expanding it to high school kids and so forth. You know, it's remarkable. And and I think the thing that's particularly concerning 
though, is that despite the rough start and the rough past couple of months, you can look at that and say, well, he's maybe he's missed his moment and so forth. But I think that's it's a long race. And he raised $8.2 million on his first day. That's a very strong number. I have a question for you about that number, because one of the things that is a sort of hallmark of DeSantis world is they kind of juice numbers. So there is a he has this statistic where he says that the crime in Florida is the lowest ever. But the would they change the way they reported crime? This could have been raised before and then announced when he announced. Right. I mean, it's easy to to juice this number. Right. I think we won't know the details behind the number until they file um, FEC reports and so forth, you know, campaign limits. We don't know the exact breakdown. I noticed that there wasn't anything about percentage of small donor, as far as I could see. There wasn't like a, we received, you know, X percent of the donations were under $200 or something like that. So, I mean, certainly it seems like they don't really want us to ask too much about how many people are donating as opposed to how much was donated. So we don't know a lot about that. But, you know, even with that, he... He's got a decently sized campaign staff. He's still hanging around at twenty, around twenty twenty five percent in Iowa, and people have come back from much farther than that at this point in the race. Right, right, right. There is like a horse race mentality towards the way all of us deal with these political, and you know, it's a horse race because it's a race, right? But the one thing I want to just sort of interject here is that he's not running against a normal political candidate. He's running against Donald Trump. No, absolutely not. He's in a very strange situation in some ways, because more so than your typical sort of clear second favorite in a race. Like you think back to, for example, 2008, where I think for most of it, it was, you know, you had Clinton as the clear front as a front runner. And then Obama was probably like a number two. But when it came to debates, et cetera, Clinton always received the most fire from everybody on the stage. And I think one interesting difference here is going to be that I think DeSantis is actually going to be the target for a lot of the, and I mean, there's always some extent of that. There's always the people who aren't number two always want to become sort of the alternate option to number one. But I think the added fact that, as you said, Trump is such an unusual candidate and a lot of the other candidates are so worried about uh, alienating his base that they're going to even more focus on, on attacking DeSantis you know, and making themselves the Trump alternative rather than attacking Trump. Which is so stupid because, I mean, the whole thing is just insane. Yeah, it's incredibly short-sighted because it's like, okay, when you get to that point, then what? What's your next step? You have to attack Trump at some point if you're going to beat him. And I do think one thing that's sort of weirdly, that could be sort of weirdly to, uh, advantage is the wrong word, but but one thing that could be weirdly influencing DeSantis' strategy here is that, as we talked about, I think last time I was on the show, he doesn't really have anything else other than anger right. as a persona. And he almost may have to attack Trump just because he can't charm the audience. He's not going to charm the electorate. He's not going to pile them with policy details, that's for sure. His only approach may have to be to be tough and angry with Trump. I mean, you know, and again, I say this not so much to talk about the horse race, but so much as like, I think voters should be aware, should be looking out for where he just tries to distinguish himself on his record and where he tries to sort of out extreme Trump and 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 be aware of that threat and what that threat presents to American voters. Because I think, for example, on abortion, you're going to see some very interesting exchanges and it's going to be very revealing on what both Santis and Trump, just how far they want to go, just how extreme they want to go nationally in banning abortion and restricting women's rights. 
out trumping Trump is a fool's errand, right? I mean, people don't, people didn't, you know, Trump was not elected on his policy. He was elected on his shtick. I mean, that's the joke is like, he was a Rorschach. People liked him because he, he felt like he might, you know, they liked him because they liked him, you know, and then you have DeSantis being like, you love Trump's policies. Let me give you that with a less charisma and less charm. It's a disturbing pitch if it's successful. Right. I won't be, though. I mean, there's no chance. Yeah, I don't think it's likely. It's just I don't want people to get too relaxed about him, you know, too quickly. And, you know, I wrote this piece which got everyone and all the worst people in the world mad at me, including the Daily Mail. <laughs> they called me a Nepo baby. And, uh, you know, I said he's much more dangerous than Trump. I mean, you know, if we were going to slide into fascism, this would be the way to do it. You know, elect someone who's like Trump, but good at it. Luckily, he's so not charismatic that no one will vote for him, but or he won't be able to break the Trump spell. But I mean, he really does have, you know, if you were going to be hungry, this would be the way to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you're just talking about like as the efficiency, you know, so the efficient implementation of authoritarianism. You look at the new story from my colleagues at NBC News that it's officials in his administration, not his campaign, who are soliciting lobbyists for contributions. A John Allen story. Yes, yes. And that sort of taking that and taking, you know, taking what is already a very uh, gross practice of governors soliciting directly from from lobbyists and then adding this apparatus of the state on top of that. I mean, that's something that DeSantis has done time and again, where he just takes things that are terrible and he, he, he gloms the state apparatus onto it in very discouraging and frightening ways. Yeah, I mean, just unbelievable. Thank you so much, James. I hope you'll come back. Of course. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy it as always. It's almost here. The Nick's anniversary sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of Nick's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, 
Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Senator Tammy Baldwin is a junior senator from the state of Wisconsin. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Senator Tammy Baldwin. I am so happy to be back. We're delighted. So tell us about what you've been working on for veterans. I think people will be interested in sort of the machinations of how you get involved in what uh, legislations you do in the Senate, if you could. So if you could talk us through some of the sort of more nuts and boltsy stuff, I think that would be interesting. Absolutely. Well, let's start with uh, I, I just did a whole sweep through the state of Wisconsin. This is our Memorial Day recess. And so I got a chance to have input from veterans from all over the state, several stops. And one of the things we were focusing on is newly passed legislation called the PACT Act. And that is so long overdue, meeting our commitments to veterans who have been exposed to toxins in their service to their country. So these are burn pits. These are Agent Orange. These are exposures to other toxic fumes that so many in multiple eras have experienced. And the health outcomes of these exposures are varied, but very serious. Everything from respiratory illnesses, hypertension, to certain forms of cancer. And what happened prior to this legislation is oftentimes a veteran would say, you know, I think this ailment might be connected to my time in in uniform, my time in uh, uh, deployment. And they are basically often told no, or, you know, there's nothing going on here that has to do with your service. And that has been turned around completely with the PACT Act. And now we are seeing veterans, there's a review of the exposures they might have had during their service, and they're being connected to VA services now, whether that be the ability to get their health care through the VA or a recognition of a disability that provides some disability compensation. And boy, the stories I heard this week were so powerful, including one that is so important to remember that there was a surviving spouse of a Vietnam veteran. He never had the VA admit that his illnesses might be service-connected. But then after we passed the PACT Act, retroactively they said, of course, this cancer and this respiratory illness was service-connected based on the new law. And therefore, the surviving widow 
and children in college all got benefits related to his service. I mean, again, long overdue, but from time to reach out and try to retroactively meet our commitments, our promises. This dovetails with expanding the VA. Can you explain to us a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah. So first of all, when you pass legislation like this, the you know implementation is a big deal. Getting that right is a big deal. We just didn't have enough staff who process claims in order to keep up with this. And so the the VA has been hiring more folks that review these claims and that can make good on this commitment faster than, you know, if we hadn't expanded. The other thing that's happening is internal to the VA health system, you know, if if we have arguably 3.5 million veterans who may be eligible for services under the PACT Act, that requires a big expansion of capacity. And so right now, a lot of the exams for eligibility are actually being done in the community. There's VA referrals to community doctors. And it's not without little bumps. And I certainly heard about a lot of these bumps on the road. Sure you did. But uh, it is expanding capacity to be able to determine eligibility and then get people in for both healthcare and treatment for their conditions, as well as, again, reviewed for eligibility for disability payments. What will that look like? Well, it's happening right now. What I can tell you, though, uh, as we speak at a time when there are precarious negotiations going on on how to avoid default, if what the Republicans in the House of Representatives passed a few weeks back were to ever come to be or even close, uh, even part thereof, the VA would have to turn back on all of the hiring they've just done and the sort of expansion they've been able to achieve to implement the PACT Act. And we would be basically having an empty promise for veterans once again. And so it is so vital during these very precarious days uh, to trying to avoid default on the nation's debt that we don't prospectively slash and burn our ability to make good on our word to our veterans, uh, make good on our word to our seniors and other vulnerable populations like our, our children. So let me ask you, this bill is bipartisan. The PACT Act was, yes. So talk to me about that. When we were passing it last year, there was a strong coalition, but it actually came close to not passing in the Senate. You know, in order to defeat a filibuster, we need 60, which means all the Democrats and at least 10 Republicans or last year. Yeah, last year, at least 10 Republicans because we were 50-50. And it was precarious for a while. There was a moment in which some of the Republicans had reneged on their support and it looked like it was going to go down. And then we saw veterans uh, uh, come out and um, there was, you know, there were people uh, camping out on the steps of the Capitol saying, you've got to make good on your commitment. You've got to see this through. And their heroic activism following their time in, in uniform was really critical to getting it over the hump. But we ultimately had uh, sufficient votes um, uh, from Republicans to get this PACT Act passed into law. And you also worked with J.D. Vance. Can you talk about that? Well, that's been, you know, he he's come into the Senate since all of the, since the PACT Act, et cetera. But yes, absolutely. We just introduced a, a measure together called the 
cool online act. <laughs> okay. So what does that mean? Cool stands for country of origin labeling. So what I will tell you, and everybody knows this, if you go to retail store, bricks and mortar store, walk in the door and you're say buying a shirt and you can look at the label on that shirt and it will tell you where it was made, made in Vietnam made in the USA, made wherever. You can look at an object, a plate, you know, you smashed your plate, you're replacing it. It'll say where it was made. If you shop online, there is no obligation right now to tell where something was made. Now, I'm somebody who loves to support Wisconsin businesses, even if I can, but it'll say made in America and not usually made in Wisconsin. Right. But, you know, I buy local when I can support local businesses, but I want to know where something I'm buying was produced. And I've been fooled a number of times online, especially during the pandemic where I wasn't going out as much to stores. And I remember buying something and it arriving, I was all excited and saw that it was made in China. And it was like a surprise to me. I thought I was buying from a US vendor. And anyways, we want this information available to consumers online when they shop. And uh, JD Vance um, stepped up and said, that's something that I'm in, interested in. Um, you know, he hails from a, a manufacturing state like I do, and we want to support U.S. jobs when we can. Yeah. Your woman, your were the first gay senator, 2012, first openly gay senator. That's right. It's an important distinction. It's a very important <laughs> distinction. But you're working with J.D. Vance, who has, I mean, despite his earlier time being more moderate or at least appearing more moderate, he really embraced MAGA. I mean, explain to us, because I think there's like a relevant issue on how we live with our, I don't have any MAGA relatives, but I'm sure a lot of people do. How do you work with someone where some of their core tenants are so not your own? It's been a long journey in terms of my time in politics, but let me tell you a story from the early days, just to give you a sense of how I approached this. Back when I was in the state assembly, there's a very conservative Democrat. So he's in my caucus. He's been around for a long time. I'm like a freshman state assembly member. He was pro-life. There was a day that we were uh, uh, about to consider some anti-choice legislation Typically, Democrats stick together on procedural votes. And so this was a vote to advance. And I wanted everybody in our caucus to vote no so we could stop the bill. He voted yes, and it was a procedural vote. It wasn't on the substance of the bill. And I was really, really angry as a woman. And I was going to march across that room and give him a piece of my mind. I don't know who intervened, but you know, nobody knew I was going to give him a piece of my mind, but somebody came up, we had a discussion, et cetera. He was gone. I didn't have the confrontation. The next day, he, as a committee chair, again, a senior member, blocked a bill, the advancement of a bill to institute the death penalty in Wisconsin. We actually don't have the death penalty in Wisconsin. And he was my biggest hero that day because that was something I never wanted Wisconsin to do. And it was like that whiplash of yesterday I wanted to scream at him. The next day I wanted to say that was brave. That was the right thing to do. And um, it was against the will of the public. And that was a lesson I never, ever have forgotten, especially when you work in a job like I do. Um, and so bring that many, many years forward. You know, I, I remember when I was running for reelection in 2018, 
running into my first Trump Baldwin voters. Like, who is that? Who votes for Trump? <laughs> and then <laughs> <laughs> later, but you know, I was I ran into this guy who worked in a in a foundry, um, in a foundry, actually. And he, he yeah, I saw him and he said, you're picking on my guy, Trump. And I'm like, you know, um, he's why do you keep picking on my guy, Trump? And I'm like, you know, sometimes he deserves it. And he got a little bit of a grin, not much. And um, but somebody came up to him afterwards and said, OK, so you're a big Trump fan. What do you think of Baldwin? And he said, oh, she has my support. She supports Buy America just like Trump does. And my job wouldn't be here if we didn't have Buy America policies. Right. And so, you know, between my ancient history with my colleague, uh, my my pro-life colleague and, and my current dealings with folks who, yes, in many, many realms have very different views, but we find common ground. And I will have to say one more thing, though. It doesn't mean that I don't speak out about the things that are being said, especially when it happens in committee and on the floor. And I hear it. Sometimes they say things, you know, to audiences or on Fox that I never hear about because I don't pay attention. But when I when I hear them in, in person, we have to speak out. And I do. I'm always of the belief that these people, that a lot of this stuff is performative, the racism, the sexism. But do you actually hear stuff from your fellow senators? You don't obviously need to answer those if you don't want to, but were you sort of blanche? Yes, I I, um, I actually remember one of my Republican colleagues coming into a hearing after somebody had just been what is the, what would I call it? Bloviating or? You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was one of his Republican colleagues and he said, I come to hearings because they're informative. Some people come because it's performative. And I think we just saw that. And he said that of his Republican colleague. Maybe I see it less in the Senate than I used to in the House, which is kind of a little crazier for him. And, but, you know, I think a lot of times they save their performances for cable news and for other uh, media where they can grow their following and raise money and all of that sort of thing. And they're a little more tame in the chamber and in the committee rooms. So I guess I don't see as much of that, but I do see some. And yeah, it makes me uneasy. And then you got to decide whether you're going to use your time to make your points or to respond to theirs. Both are important. Especially if you're doing something like a hearing where you want information. Right. Can you talk to us a little bit about like sort of, you know, you're running for reelection state of Wisconsin, really a split state, but a state that has really, I think, been affected by, I don't know, I mean, that Supreme Court election seems like a really important data point. Will you talk to us about how that factors into your thinking? Sure. So first of all, you know, the 2020 midterms, again, we were that 50-50 sort of state. We had a wonderful victory when our Governor won re-election with like a landslide 3.4%. Right. For Wisconsin is huge, right? Yes. He like doubled his margin from uh, four years earlier. So we re-elected Tony Evers. And then we had this heartbreaking loss um, uh, for our U.S. Senate seat after the Republicans spent, I think it was $77 million dollars in support of the incumbent Ron Johnson, Mandela Barnes lost by like less than a percentage point. Closest 
Senate race in the country. He came closer to, you know, upsetting an incumbent than any other candidate this past cycle. But it shows this sort of 50-50 nature of the state of Wisconsin. And then, you know, just a few months after that, in April of this year, we had our nonpartisan spring general elections. And these are mayors and school board, county board, city council. But we had one statewide race, and that was for Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. And it just so happened with our seven-member court and a conservative justice retiring, this race meant flipping the ideological balance of our uh, state Supreme Court. And having just nationally experienced the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and Wisconsin has a near total criminal abortion ban, people started connecting the dots like that is a state law. Maybe the state Supreme Court could hear a case about it. And maybe they'd find it's unconstitutional under the state constitution. And we could become a state that provides more fulsome reproductive care than we are right now, which is, you know, we're not. <laughs> that race was about rights and freedoms. And Wisconsinites were down resoundingly saying, regardless of party, we want our rights and freedoms back. And so it was about abortion care, but it was also about voting and gerrymandering and access to the ballot box. And it was about undoing what we saw happen during the Scott Walker administration, where voting rights were curtailed and it was made more difficult, or um, collective bargaining rights were curtailed or made more difficult. And so I think collectively, that bundle of rights and freedoms, people were like, we're sick of seeing us go backwards and all of that became a part of that race. And, you know, I announced my reelection sort of uh, in the wake of that, uh, riding the tidal wave of that, if you will, and certainly hope that we are going to have the ability to say that was step one. You got to keep involved to take the next step and the next step and the next step. Those don't happen without voter involvement, activist involvement. You know, it's not one and done. We got to keep on going. Senator Tammy Baldwin, thanks so much. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I look forward to talking again. Hi, it's Molly. And I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now, is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Kim Kelly is the author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Welcome to Fast Politics, Kim Kelly. Thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. We're delighted to have you. So I feel like this is like part of what's happening in Republican America is that we're just like going back to all these things that were like they, you know, they're always like so fetishizing the olden days. So here's something 
that you had in the olden days, black lung. <laughs> Let's start with what black lung is. Sure. So black lung, is, its official designation is CWP, coal miners pneumoconiosis. It's an occupational disease that workers contract when they're working underground a coal mine. They're breathing in coal dust and silica dust, and that is causing immense damage to their lungs. And it's an incurable disease. It's a really ugly, horrible disease. And it's also a preventable disease. And basically, you, um, you smother to death. You stop being able to breathe. And a, a black lung diagnosis shortens a minor's lifespan by at least 12 years, if not more. And that's probably an average. So it probably shortens other people's lifespans much more, right? I mean... Yeah, depending on what you have going on. It's it's really, it's just so ugly. And it's like you said, we, we think of it as this olden times thing. Like, I always think of that stupid quote in Zoolander, you know, I've got the black lung pop. Like... Well, and the idea was there was legislation to protect people from having this passed in the late 70s. Yeah, the the Mine Safety Act, like that made a huge impact. It really brought numbers down. But uh, we're in 2023 and things are not as they should be. And so what has happened here? Who can we blame for this, more importantly? (laughs) There's a bunch of people that uh, I would love to get five minutes alone in a room with (laughs) this issue. But essentially, the the reason that black lung coal miners pneumoconiosis is having this spike and has been having this spike for really the past past 20 years is that they, they, there's a couple different things going on. But like the most basic reason that this is happening is that this is happening in central Appalachia in places like West Virginia, southern Virginia and Kentucky, where the coal seams, the famous Appalachian coal seams, have gotten so much thinner because people have been mining there for centuries now. And so miners have to go through much, much more rock and sandstone to get to the coal they're trying to dig out. And that rock is full of silica. Silica dust is about 20 times more toxic and deadly than regular coal dust. And so there's so much more of this incredibly toxic material floating around. There's so much more of it too because the advances in technology since the 70s have been huge in terms of production. There's tons of heavy machinery doing the work that before was just done by people. And now you can mine about, I think a miner friend of mine told me the numbers, like it takes about 24 hours now to get the same amount of coal that it used to take two weeks. Like the production is off the chain. And so there's all this happening. And there's also a lack of regulations that protect these guys, protect these workers. There isn't right now a federal silica standard for coal mines. There's all this red tape, like kind of bunched up in the Department of Labor and then whoever it is in charge, you know, who gets to dictate how we live our lives. This is a problem that we've known about since the 70s. We've known that silica dust is incredibly toxic, incredibly harmful, but it just kind of got put on the back burner for some reason. And now there's people my age, I'm 35. There's guys around my age, even younger, who are now dealing with this, this horrific disease. It, in a worse way, it's, uh, it's progressing faster because the silica dust is more dangerous and more damaging. And so it's just this, it's heartbreaking. Like reporting this story broke my heart, meeting people my age who I know 
you know, who have kids, who have dreams, who have lives, who are now going to end up smothering to death in a hospital bed instead of living the full life they deserve. Is this like, you know, these regional banks where they fought for less regulation and we're seeing results of this? Or is this just something that's been a kind of blind spot? Actually, this is tied to politics and it is something we can blame on Trump, like most things, in, in a way, because this is this okay. is an issue that's been yeah. ongoing for years, since the early 2000s. And during the Obama administration, they did try to work on a silico rule to address this issue and they just didn't get it out in time. And but then the Trump administration showed up. And even though he loved to talk and pretend like he cared about coal miners and take photo ops with coal miners in Appalachia, uh, his during his administration, he actually installed a former coal executive to lead MSHA, the Mine Safety and Health Administration. And when that guy was there, he spent his time examining ways to make regulations and silica less burdensome for coal operators. So he was basically trying to make it easier for coal bosses to get around regulations or to not have them at all. And so if we hadn't had this Trump era and this, you know, Republican BS, oh, we care about coal miners, but we care about business more situation, we would probably be further along. And there's probably people I know that wouldn't be as sick as they are. But it all, so much of this comes down to who sits in the White House because uh, agencies like the Department of Labor and MSHA, like they, they're really subject to the turnover in Washington. You know, every few years, a new administration comes in and they decide what's going on. And if that administration doesn't care about workers, doesn't care about public health, doesn't care about upsetting, it doesn't, doesn't want to upset their coal boss friends, then these things aren't going to get passed and they aren't going to make it through. And then the next administration has to play catch up. I mean, coal, I think of as expensive and bad for the environment, but there still really is a major business there, right? And can you sort of talk to us about that? Yeah, I mean, in some places, really, it's in Appalachia and places like West Virginia, especially, it's so entwined with the, not only the economy, but just the cultural fabric of the region, because that's the main extractive resource. That's where so many people, not the workers, but the the bosses, have made their money. Like there's been a concentrated effort in places like that to really boost coal as you know this this great thing. This is our this is our best hope. This is all we have. You know, don't listen to those you know, union people or those environmental people. This is this is all we got. And you have that rhetoric being amplified by the politicians and by business friendly media, like. It's it's different in coal country, you know, like if you're not in that area, if you don't know folks in that culture and that tradition, you would think, well, why would anyone want to be involved with coal? Why we need to get rid of it, obviously. But then you go into places like Mingo County or Matewan, places where coal is just so it's kind of the only game in town. And you talk to people say, oh, this is the best job I can get. Like I can make a decent living going into these mines. Like this is where like I want to get this job. The, otherwise, there's what? There's Walmart or maybe a meatpacking plant where I'll make right. a couple bucks an hour. It is the same as in um, in Alabama in the coal miner strike I was covering there for a couple of years at Warrior Met. Like it's it's not always as as simple as it may seem outside of those communities, right? Because if you have options, you're not going to go down into a coal mine, right? Right. But that's assuming you have options. Let's talk about what you think the Biden administration should be doing. 
Well, right now there is, and I have to shout out Emsha, Chris Williamson, the new head of it, uh, of the agency. He's, I like him. I think he really cares and he's really trying to address this issue. It's like his main, it's his biggest priority. And right now they're trying to promulgate a new rule, a new silica standard that'll take the standard down to something that matches the data we got in the 70s. Like it, basically this will solve solve some problems, right? If we can get this rule through and really get these regulations in place. And really what I would love to see is to see MSHA agency get a whole lot more money so they can hire more staff so they can inspect these mines. I want them to be able to really go after the mine operators who flout these regulations and try to get around it and actually find them something that hurts, throw some mine bosses in jail. Hell, you know, like they're, the administration does have the power to change the circumstances here. They just need the motivation and they need to throw some money at it. Like I would love to see a public health campaign that really emphasizes like this is not just something that happens to your grandpa. This might happen to you. Like there is so much that can be done. I think that they just need, yeah, the political will and the the understanding that even if a lot of folks in these areas didn't vote for you, you still have to care. And maybe if you show how much you care, that might change the way they see you too. You know, there's so many opportunities, I think, especially in places that get get called forgotten or left behind and, and painted as, oh, these Trump oases. Like people there need stuff. They need help. They need resources. Right. And if I was in charge, if I was a Democratic president in that weird alternative timeline, I would spend a lot of time getting them stuff, getting the things they need. So, yeah, it's... But the governor there, Jim Justice, was a Democrat and is a Republican. And he's also pretty involved in the mining industry, right? I mean, it just goes to show that you can be from a place and of a place and still not give a shit about the people that have less money than you, right? Right. This is not a secret. People in Appalachia, especially West Virginia, know this is a big problem. It's just not something that is getting much attention outside of those areas, unless you're like me and end up on the coal miner beat somehow coming down from South Philly. I mean, it's it just comes down to the influence of money and capital and anti-worker, pro-business, just nasty policies that Republicans and the far right and conservatives, they're all the same, try to push through. Like they don't care about people. You can go up and you know, talk about growing up in the hollers and talk about how your granddaddy was a coal miner. But if you're not using your power and your influence to actually do something about it, then you're not worth, you're just not worth anybody's time. What other sort of labor stuff are you seeing in this country besides what's happening to coal miners? Uh, There's a lot, right? I've ended up focused on this very specific slice of the labor force, but I mean, I'm on the Writers Guild Council. So when I'm not paying attention to coal miners, I'm paying attention to the writer's strike, which is now, I think, in its third week where we've been out for a minute. It's been really exciting to see that, especially because I've had a little bit of an inside view, right? Like my union, the Writers Guild of America East, in addition to our sister union, the West, they've been on this strike. We've been talking about it for a long time and talking about the conditions leading up to it. And uh, I tend to, I represent the online media members of our union, not the film and TV folks. So it's kind of a big surprise to me too, hearing about some of the things these people are dealing with. And I think there was just a poll the other day that 70% of Americans support what we're doing, support the strike. And I think that's a big deal. So obviously, yeah, excited about the writer's strike. 
Are you seeing any movement there on the part of the studios, part of the streamers? Mm, I'm not privy to the negotiations, but it seems like so the situation right now is there's two other big Hollywood unions that have contracts expiring soon. They have negotiations coming up. I believe it's CGA uh, and SAG-AFTRA. And that's all happening in June. So I think the studios probably aren't going to feel like they need to pay that much attention until after that's done. And I think that's going to bite them in the ass because yeah. people are pretty fired up. And we're seeing so much solidarity from other union members in different parts of Hollywood already. Like, imagine what it would look like if all of Hollywood shut down. I feel like that would send a pretty fun message to the people exploiting our members. The anxiety that I have with a lot of this, especially with the studios and the streamers, there are certain things that the government could do and probably should do, like with the AI stuff and the regulating the AI that is now sort of involved in this strike. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Writers Guild's pretty reasonable demands about AI? Yeah, I mean, we <laughs> we want to ensure that they're not just having AI written scripts that then they bring our members in to rework and sound human. You know, it's this AI situation. This this strike is really a watershed moment. Honestly, if they're if AI is coming for our jobs, they're coming for yours next. You know, like it's it's a moment where we do we could see action from the government to get ahead of this. We could see action from corporations who realize maybe this is not what our consumers want and certainly not what our employees want. This is a moment and I'm so hopeful that it the ball won't get fumbled. But also, I mean, there's not a lot of historical uh, evidence for the government not fumbling right. the ball in these types of moments. I don't think a robot could do my job, but somebody who makes more money than me, who has control of whether or not I get that commission might think so. And then who's going to want to read that? Right. Is this ridiculous? I saw like, I can't remember the person. I feel bad, but I saw such a good tweet the other day about like, why are we like, if this is the future we're building, why are we allowing robots to, why are we trying to automate art and creativity and fun stuff instead of like, why, why are we using AI to make it safer for people to go down into a coal mine? Like that's what you should use robots and automation for not displacing workers and making life worse for everybody else. Part of how this AI gets smarter is by reading work. And so if an AI reads all of the law and order scripts, they will learn how to, this This is anyway the thinking, they will then learn how to write law and order scripts better than the humans who wrote them. So what these unions are desperately sort of begging the studios to do is not to use their work or to compensate them for training the AI. Right. So, I mean, that's just, that's not fair. You know, you spend all of this time creating this piece of work and then you just plug it into a machine and they, they use that to automate your job away. It's asking people to contribute to their own like, unemployment or the, the dissolution of their industry and their work and their craft. Just makes me think of my my friend Brian Merchant just wrote a really great book about the Luddites called Blood of the Machine. And I think I think a lot about what he wrote in that book, where there's this moment when workers were faced with uh, the implementation of new technology and we're given a choice. Like we can embrace this and we could decimate our tradition, our centuries of tradition and leave tons of people unemployed and, desol and desolate or we could 
work together to regulate this and make it fair and come up with something that works for both of us, for labor and capital, for the employers and the workers. And it took in in the that moment in history in, in England, like the 1700s, the, the government actually just sent in their equivalent of the National Guard to, to stop all that. But we have this opportunity here to ask ourselves, just because we can use this technology for something, should we? Who is this going to benefit? Is this going to create something worth consuming, worth listening to, worth watching? Or is it just going to line some people's pockets for a few years until the next thing comes along? Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast. This chaos caucus is still up to no good in these debt ceiling negotiations, huh? You know who's having a bad, bad day? <laughs> Who? Ch- Chip Roy. Oh, what what a shame. He's mad as hell. Mad as hell. Chip Roy, the only person less appealing than Ted Cruz, which <laughs> wow. is ironic because he used to work for Ted Cruz. There are members of the GOP claiming Democrats got nothing from the quote unquote deal. Oh, really? An uncapped debt ceiling with an expiration date worth approximately four trillion to basically no cuts, a freeze at a bloated 2023 spending level. Zero clawback. I mean, basically, let me just say the one good thing is that if Chip Roy is mad, you know that the White House is doing something right. And for that, he is a very heartily takes our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear. 
and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.